Our passage this morning is found in John 20. It is an Easter sermon, and we will see, learn from the resurrection. Um, I think most of you maybe know that this, that Jesus died and he rose again, and so we're going to read a passage about that. And it's really, really good, a good passage. And I, I kind of laughed this year as I looked at my sermons. I thought, you know, I'm, everyone does a gospel. I'm going to do a Paul, like a, a letter of Paul. And I went back and looked at my seven Easter ser- or six previous Easter sermons, and they're all Paul. But maybe I ought to do a gospel. Um, so John 20 is beautiful. It's been nourishing to my soul at a study this week. And then also Jason and I have been doing these devotionals going through the letter of John, so or the gospel of John. So here we are at the resurrection. Let's read it together with fresh eyes and ears. John 20, verses 1 to 29. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have, taken, where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. When stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloth lying there, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloth, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture, that he he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing But she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabbani, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my father and your father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these other things to her. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now, Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, 
was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them, although the doors were locked. Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. This is the word of the Lord. Heavenly Father, we come to this reality of the resurrection, not only on Easter, but every Sunday. And yet our hearts can grow cold in disbelief. So Father, I pray, Holy Spirit, you would show us freshly what it might mean to really grasp and believe the truths of the resurrection. Lord, for those that are here who may not know you, we pray that this reality that, Jesus, you conquered death would would ignite in them a desire to be a disciple and one of yours. All for your glory. Amen. There is a lot going on in this passage. Um, I, I titled the sermon, Making All Things New, because that is a picture of what Jesus came to do. We saw... In our call to worship from Revelation 21, where John, the writer of this gospel, is also writing the book of Revelation. And he's quoting Jesus who says, Behold, I have come to make all things new. I've come to wipe away every tear from the eyes of people. To come and, and basically, as Tolkien worded it, to make all things sad come untrue. That is the gospel message. Jesus is turning around the problem of the fall And that problem is death. And so we've been singing and talking about death, even some of our songs, where is your sting, O death? Because death is present in all of us as mortals. And it it shows up through, one of the primary ways, is fear. I was listening to a book, uh, Audible, and the author is a really famous psychologist, really good writer. And I won't go into all the details of the book, but just one line caught me. He said all the clients that come to him problems, what he would call neuroses, like the things that are kind of like you don't want to have, but they're there, you have them. And we all have these, by the way. And you go to the psychologist and you have these problems and the psychologist, this gentleman says, they're all really an attempt at mitigating fear. In other words, his point is we have fear, all of us, but it's our attempts at mitigating that fear through the choices we make, the patterns we have, that obviously that, uh, that lead us down these paths of brokenness and problems. And so really there's two ways to deal with fear. If this is true and you buy into what I'm saying, you've got two options. One is to mitigate it, to do things to forget it, right? Drugs, alcohol, become a great whatever, just anything you're going to do to try to keep that feeling at bay. Or you go to the source and have the, re- the actual fear removed, which is what Jesus came to do. So in our passage, Jesus tells Mary, and we're going to really spend time thinking through this concept, you are, you are connected to the Father. What was broken, what was sad, has become untrue. You are now in 
the Father with me. And so Christians can live, because of that reality, free from fear. The resurrection gives us power over fear to live resurrected lives. So that's going to be what we look at this morning from this passage. There's a lot of things you could do with it. But we're going to look at the reason for fear, the expressions of fear, and the calming of our fears. So uh, the reason for fear, we, we've heard the line many, many times, FDR, there is nothing to fear but fear itself, right? And it, you hear that, you're like, yes, no, right? Like, that's not true. It isn't true. There's, a, there's like an enemy. I think Nazi Germany at the time. I mean, there's problems. There's real problems. Um, we are people who mitigate fears. You hear it all the time. Uh, I just saw the other day a child's running just slaps that pavement. You've heard that noise. Boom, right? And you cringe, and the parent's like, you're okay, you're all right. And you want to go, no, they're not okay. Their head, like, just hit that sidewalk. And did you hear the noise I heard? But I know what they're doing. What are they doing? And, we, and all parents do this. You, you think a little bit farther outside the box, like, if I look scared, the child will become unconsolable. And so I mitigate it by pretending everything's okay, even though it's not. They really hurt. Now, for you parents that do this, it's okay. You can keep doing it. Just make sure you pay for their therapy and counseling as they grow. Genesis begins with this reality of a problem. In the garden, we have the fall. And what is Adam's response when he hears God walking in the cool of the day? He hides. And when God finds him, he's like, why did you hide? He said, I was afraid. And that's what the expression of death is. We fear God, not in the biblical good way, like I respect and I'm in awe of him. We are in terror of God. And so we don't know what to do. And that fear is why Jesus came and what the empty tomb signifies. Now, in our passage, Jesus is very much aware of the fact that his disciples, as we build up to chapter 20 from 14 on, he's aware that they're going to have fear. He tells them in chapter 14 uh, let not your, your hearts be troubled. He knows, like, you're going to face fear. They don't know what he's talking about. But these men have staked everything on this person, Jesus. He's, he's raised people from the dead. He's created bread out of nothing, right? He's walked on water. And they have said it to themselves and believed he is the Messiah. Peter and the others confess, you are the Messiah. And then he dies. And their hopes are dashed. And it's Saturday. He dies on a Friday, and Sunday is coming. And, and there's no hope. Their hopes are gone. What they did was they recognized they were afraid, but they sat in it. They, they huddled together. They, 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 they waited, and they didn't just choose other things. And then in our passage, at the first hint of hope, it still sounds really negative. Mary says they've stolen his body. Peter and John hear a glimmer of hope. What if? What if? And they run. And they run to the tomb. And it's funny, John's the writer. He's like, I outran him. But then he also kind of confesses on himself, but then I didn't go in. Peter went in, being Peter. And essentially what I think John's saying, because we know from another gospel, that both he and Peter believed. They, they knew their fear, but they heard hope, and they ran in, and they believed. And so as we look through this idea of fear, I'm asking us to think about the fact that we need to begin to identify the ways our fears drive us 
away from the cross, away from the risen Savior? What are the ways we actually allow our own fears to overwhelm us and keep us from going to the, to the cross? And one of the things I talk a lot about is looking at your own story, looking at what's happened in your life. Why are you who you are these, this day? And a lot of Christians are terrified of that. And I encourage all of us to notice the places that we're afraid of and begin to look at the ways we avoid those thoughts, those places, what habits, what styles of behavior, what addictions, what personality traits have emerged to keep us from going into these hard places. Because the gospel calls us to hard places. Right? The gospel is always saying there is a lot to be afraid of. But then the risen Savior says, and I've conquered it. So now we have nothing anymore to fear. If we are in Christ, we can actually go. Yes, there's a reason for fear, but in Christ, we can move toward these hard places. And I just want you to begin to think about what you do to cover over these places. What do you do to avoid the thoughts of fear? We'll begin to kind of, I'll, I'll build on that as we go. Because in our second thought, we're going to look at this expression of fear from our passage. That we have, John is giving us this amazing story, and then he gives us two people who respond uniquely to what's going on in fear, right? The first person is Mary, her expression of fear. She comes back, we aren't sure the timing, but it seems that John and Peter have already left by the time she returns. It's probably a little bit later in the morning, and she comes to this tomb, and she, she comes to it, and she leans in and looks and sees these two angels and, and, the, and John tells us she's weeping, like just tears. And I guess my question is, is that a problem for you? Notice that the angels say, why are you weeping? Like the actual is woman, comma, why are you weeping? It sounds very demeaning in our modern ears. It really isn't demeaning um, because what the, the idea is these two... I mean, these angels have known probably for a long time, you two have been chosen to go into the tomb and, and Jesus is going to rise from the, you know, he's going to wake up and come back to life. You're going to be there and you have a job to do. Like, I, I don't know the whole cloth thing. Like, one of you has got to get the cloth so he can breathe. You know, you're going to fold that up. And they are, this is the day they've been waiting for. And they're there and they're doing this work as angels. And I don't know what it is. I've, not, I've seen Highway to Heaven, but I don't. Angels are mysterious. And here's Mary weeping, and I think it's a very natural thing to say, like, why? Not because you shouldn't cry, but more like, I have great news. Though your weeping makes sense if he's still dead or stolen, it makes no sense once you understand the reality of his resurrection. So weeping is not a problem. And I just want us to know before I get to the good news of the resurrection, we need to go through our emotions and express them. I wonder if that's not why Jesus did this. Sometimes we need, and I'm sorry when I use you in the first sermon, but sometimes we need someone that's in our life that will cry on our behalf. Emily's tears come faster than mine, and that's helpful for me. Sometimes we need somebody to lead us into weeping. And so Mary, I mean, Peter and John are just gone, but Mary is showing us a sense of sadness that we can lean into, and it creates the space for Jesus to come in and do what he does, which we're going to talk about in the next point. But even James tells us in a very, what's a very poignant phrase, weep, you sinners, 
right? Cry, he says, mourn and wail. Why would we do that if I have the risen Savior? Because we, to get to the upside of the gospel, we have to go through the downside of the, of the brokenness of our hearts. Does that make sense? Um, have you seen the videos of the soldiers, like a, a mom or a dad surprising the child somewhere, and they video the child's response? And there's a lot of these videos. And the kid is almost always, what, in tears. You know, just in utter emotion. It's a glorious moment. Now, those are happy tears, but there's also grief in the, in the fact that I've missed you. And the videos would not work at all if it was like the kid was like, oh, cool. Guess what I'm having for lunch, you know, or some kind of a statement like that. It would be a very, like, boring video. But you see the emotion, and it draws us in. And let me just say, for us, as we come to the resurrection, we need to come through grief like Mary and sadness. But also, Thomas is another expression of emotion and, and fear. His is a little different. His comes out more like anger. So he shows up. He's missed the fun. Like, you'll let you know that feeling of when you've missed everything. It's like, ah. Oh. And they're like, well, Jesus was here, and he showed us his wounds, and you missed it. And Thomas is like, oh, yeah? Well, I don't just want to see them. I want to feel them. I want to touch them. I want to put my hand in that wound. And he goes on to just add this last statement, I will, if I don't do that, I will never believe. What's he saying? Like, you guys are foolish to believe just because you saw a ghost or something. I'm going to touch them. But what he's actually doing, I believe, is expressing just the sense of anger and, and overwhelmness of the fact that if Jesus is raised from the dead, what does this mean? And every time we get really close to hope, every time we get really close to the potential of the beauty and the glory of what the gospel could mean, there might be that sense of like, I don't know if I can trust that. Kind of digging in the heels, right? It's interesting, Caravaggio paints this painting. It's the incredulity of St. Thomas. And I, I love, of all the um, masters of the Renaissance, Caravaggio painted in this style called chiaroscuro, dark, dark backgrounds and really vibrant color for the foregrounds of the characters he's painting. And, and it's this picture of Thomas putting his like finger in Jesus' wound. <clears throat> and it's fascinating. And um, I was kind of thinking about what that would have been like for Thomas to do that. And I was talking with Jason, this, this service, Jason, last service he was over there. Which is nice to have a teammate we can kind of process together. And he said, you know, I don't, you might read it again. I don't know that Thomas actually touched his wounds. And so I went back and started looking. And actually, Jesus shows up, it's eight days later, and says, put your finger here and, and see my hands and put your, out your hand. Wait, sorry. Put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. And so he's telling Thomas sort of like, Here's the proof. But then he simply just says, do not disbelieve, but believe. That's all in one statement. Now, maybe Thomas really did do that. But the way it reads upon second and third and fourth reading is, Thomas says, my Lord and my God. And I really believe it's very possible he didn't need to do that. He was just angry. He missed it. He couldn't believe it. It's hard to get your mind around a risen Savior. They told him the news. And now that he is seeing it firsthand, he's seeing Jesus. Jesus not only shows up, but he knows about the statements he had made and tells him what to do. And I think Thomas just melts, my Lord and my God. 
And yet, Jesus, we, we make Thomas out to be a bad guy. I mean, right? He's, he should have never doubted, we say. And yet, it's through his doubting and his expression of doubt that he had this experience. And so let me encourage you, as we come to this resurrection and we come to the reality of what Jesus is doing, please understand your emotions, your fears, and, and naming them and moving toward them is essential because they're there, right? And Jesus will use those to keep revealing himself freshly to you. How are you expressing your fears? Um, one of my arguments, I, I, I've been building this up. Uh, you can, we, I'd love to have a debate or a discussion some other time. I think sin, almost always, if not always, I think our sinful responses are ways of mitigating our fears. I really do. I think if you take any sin struggle you have, no matter how crazy it is, and you think about what would it be like to just not do that? Like the next time, what would it just be like? What do you feel? You feel kind of anxious. Like, I would feel anxious. I would feel like, and James tells us in James 1, when you're tempted, don't blame God for your temptation because your temptation is when you you lack something and you desire something and then you go, base, I mean, I'm paraphrasing, you go get the thing. You go solve the problem. And so if you study James and read what he's saying there in chapter 1, and um, I think oftentimes our expressions of sin are basically our fears of saying, Jesus, I have a need. I don't, wanna, I don't know how to just say that. So I took matters into my own hands. Um, an example of that would be, and I was talking with Emily about this, ch- uh, the, a baby rooting. And she challenged me to talk about it, so I'm going to. You know what it means when a baby roots? Everybody, moms, dads. In Psalm 131, the writer says, But I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. And before I had babies, I thought, what an odd image. Because I would think the baby that was still feeding would be the most intimate. Like, but the writer of the psalm is saying, no, no, like a baby that's still feeding roots and is very anxious. Have you seen these infants? Like, we finally had babies after I started reading the Bible. And um, then I knew that a baby, an infant, the second their cheek is touched, they just start kind of, their head just starts going back and forth, right? They're looking for the, and so we've invented pacifiers. And all we do as adults is we just change out our pacifiers, don't we? And rather than going to the Lord like a weaned child, we just turn to things. Things that may look good to the culture and things that may look bad, but we just choose systems and methods and patterns to not need and to not face fear. And what the writer is saying is like a weaned child with his mother is my soul. And Jesus is saying, here's the resurrection. You come to me, bring your fears, and I will calm your fears. That's our last point. Jesus calms the fears in our passage. Um, One of the primary ways he does this, obviously, every time he shows up to the disciples in the latter part of our text, he begins with peace be with you. He says it like three times. And it would be very tempting to think, oh, he's being cordial. He's using kind of a modern, you know, that's what you do when you enter the room in that era. Well, he's risen from the dead. Like he's not going to follow. He, walked, he didn't even come through the door. So why would he all of a sudden do that? So that's not the option. So maybe he's, maybe they're scared of him, like, you know, terrified. Do not, but that, usually in the Bible, that's do not be afraid. I'm okay with that second option in some level, but I think more is going on. And when you connect chapter 20 with all that he's been doing starting in 14 on, 
He keeps saying, peace I'm going to bring to you. Peace I'm going to give to you. And what Jesus has been saying throughout his ministry and what he's telling this group of disciples is, I'm making all things new. I'm here to restore what's broken. That's what we're doing. He's comforting them with that reality. And so we come to this situation with Mary, where Mary has come into this tomb. She's been weeping. The angels say, why are you weeping? Um, She doesn't recognize Jesus. She thinks he's the gardener. There's a lot of questions around that. One option is, if you just imagine looking in a tomb and letting your eyes adjust, and then you hear the noise of the footsteps, and you turn, and it's sunny out, you're going to have a difficulty seeing the figure. So whether it's a spiritual thing, like the road to Emmaus, and, or not, and Jesus uses unfamiliar language, meaning he says, woman, why are you weeping? But then he says, what? Mary. And she hears her name, and she completely melts. And she apparently just grabs onto him and says, Rabbi, and he says, do not cling to me. Now, again, do not cling to me sounds rude, and it's not. It's super awesome. And here's why. First of all, I think she's probably been holding on to him for a little bit. So it's kind of like, okay, <laughs> this is, it's been long enough. Um, but had it been inappropriate, he would have said so. That's not what's going on. What does he say? Do not cling to me, for I have to ascend to my father. He's, he's giving theological information. He's letting her understand redemptive theological needs that she doesn't quite yet grasp. Obviously, he's not saying, I'm physically about to ascend, so don't hold on to me. I'm about to go. It's 40 days away. So it's something else. When you look at that Greek word for cling, it's used 35 times in the Gospels. All but one have to do with touch for healing. Either the person's touching Jesus, like the song, Heal Us, Emmanuel, and she, she touched his, his clothing, and he remembered the story, and he says, who touched me? Power has gone out, and, and she was healed. Over and over, he's either touching people to heal them, they're touching him for healing. And so here we have that same word again. Um, it's also used of the, of the anointing of Jesus before his death. Right? So what's happening? She's clinging to him and touching him, I do like the word cling because I think it shows this, again, her expression of emotion and intimacy. And what he's not saying is don't do this. What he's saying is what you really need, what, I, what you really want, I'm about to give you. But I'm going to need to ascend to the Father and send the Spirit to you of adoption. What you really are longing for, Mary, and brothers and sisters, all of us, is we are longing for union with Christ, adoption. That's what we need, and that's what we're longing for. And every one of our fears are the fears that that's just not true or available. And Jesus is comforting us by saying, listen, it is true. In fact, he tells her, go tell your brother, go tell my brothers this. I am ascending to my father and your father. He used to just say my father. Now he says my father and your father. My God and your God. Adoption. There's also this interesting note, I want to just, as we think about the comforting words of Jesus, there's this interesting place where John says, and you may have caught it, uh, he's describing himself in interesting terms. He says the disciple who was with Peter to the disciple ran Peter. But at one point he says, the one whom Jesus loved. Did you all catch that? Have you all heard of that? And it's a little bit like, what? That's not fair, right? 
but when you start to study it and unpack it, there's a, it, it really is a beautiful thing. Um, and, my, and again, not, there's not really a consensus on what it means. So I'm just simply giving you what I think it means. John's writing this, and if you read to the end, you'll notice um, he talks about how Peter, how Jesus tells Peter how Peter is going to die. And Peter wants to know how John's going to die. And there's a misunderstanding. But John's probably writing this gospel after they've all died. And secondly, this is a little bit of a, I'm, I, this might make you wonder what I'm talking about. But there's a place in the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus says, you know, the plank. Have you all heard of the plank and the speck? Are we understanding that? Like, when I, when I look at myself, my sin should not look like a speck to me. It should look like a plank sticking out of my eyeball. And your sin should not look like a plank sticking out of your eyeball. It should look like a speck to me. Why? Because I'm so aware of my heart. So if I'm actually aware of my own life and my own heart, my sin should bother me far more than your sin bothers me. Well, the opposite of that would be love. Uh, when I receive love, even if it's in the equal portion of, if you and I are both receiving the third party's love in equal portions, I'm going to feel it personally. It's going to be something I'm deeply aware of. And you see this in families where children might bicker on who the parents love the most. Because, or maybe when someone's being celebrated and you realize, like, wait, I thought I was their best friend. You're their best friend. Like, everyone just, when a person's loving, everyone feels like they got the most of that person. And so John, I think, is just expressing Jesus loves me. And my question is, do you have that sense with Jesus? Because he says he does. And he's telling you he's coming back for you and, and you are adopted and you are his. Do you know he loves you? And so as Christians, oftentimes we need to walk through these emotions because we might say, theologically I do, but I'll be honest, I don't think I would write what John wrote there. Well, that's okay. Maybe you're not there yet, and we want to grow. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, in the love chapter, he says, right now we see as in a mirror dimly. But he says, oh, you know, the implication being that that mirror, of course, when we're face to face, will be removed. We'll see Jesus. But I do think there's a sense in which the closer we draw to him this side of heaven, that mirror still becomes clearer and clearer. As we begin to bring our fears to him, point number one, we have fears. Point number two, we express them. And point three, he's comforting us in our fears because we're going to him, not the other things we run to. And as a point of practical conclusion thoughts, I just want you to know, one of the big things in this passage that so just punches us in the face is the need for community. Jesus says, go to my brothers, and then he shows up, and it's a room where there's a community, and it's the apostles, and it's the church, and he breathes the spirit on them, and he says, as I have been sent, I'm now sending you. And we basically, the church, go forward in the work of Jesus. And that's a mystery. Um, often Jesus will say, you will do greater works than me. And I think you can read that and think, like, one of us is going to walk on water or raise, you know, no. It's that the church is now filled with the Spirit, which is why he ascended. And this, the church goes out and does far more numerically greater works than one man would do. He came starts with his disciples in his church and sends it out. And so we, one of the primary applications of this, is actually heal and grow in community. And if you want proof of that, just ask yourself, how much do you avoid community? Hmm? Just like you're drawn, we avoid it, especially when we're vulnerable. 
right? I, 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 I'll close with this illustration. I didn't say it in the first sermon, but the, uh, iPhone just throws videos at you. Does everyone notice this? Am I the only one who's like, oh, I guess I'll watch this one. But there was this cool one with a, like a lion taking down a buffalo. And, and again, you, the, the big issue with these videos is like it's a gamble, isn't it? Wait for it. I'm like, everyone says wait for it, and you do, and then there's nothing half the time. I'm like, what do I wait for? But this one was cool. There's a lion taking down a water buffalo, and of course the lion's stronger. And then the second lion sort of comes up, and that water buffalo is just trying to stay alive. And, and the lion's got it on its ground. And then all of a sudden, about three or four minutes into the video, way too long in my view, uh, the herd came slowly toward the lion, the lion and the buffalo. And guess what that lion did? Took off. And it's like, oh, yes. We love movies like Ants. And, you know, we talk about this stuff in fables. And, yeah, Jesus is like, that's how it works. Satan does roam around like a roaring lion. But guess what? By yourself, you're toast. But in community, you have hope. So practically speaking, coming through a pandemic, Please come back to this church or any church where you can be known and serve and love and be united. And let's, let's see the Lord use this awful season that we've come through and lead to a resurgence in the community of his people, changing the world and changing us along the way. Let's pray. Jesus, we praise you for the resurrection and we confess yet again that we just continually, every time I come back to these scriptures, I need it freshly. Thank you for Easter. Thank you that you, um, when you instituted the Passover, before you even rescued your people, you told them how to celebrate it every year. And so, Lord, even though there, there's no particular command to celebrate Easter, it makes so much sense to come back to this year after year and, and look again at what you've done and what it means that you rose again, conquered death. And Jesus, particularly this morning where you you lean into the fears of these disciples and you calm them down and you ascend and you send your spirit uniting them to you and to each other. Father, that's a mystery that's too profound for any of us to fully grasp. But teach us to do this. Teach us to move toward people, to move toward those that are in you, Christ. Lord, to move toward each other with vulnerability and care and love. Father, will you give us this local church and, and the church all over Stillwater and the state and the nation and the world, a resurgence, a revival of your gospel coming through this dark pandemic for your glory. Amen.